Well, it's good to be back with you. I was here last week, mostly in body, not completely in mind. Um, getting back from my trip to Dubai to teach uh, biblical counseling at the Gulf Theological Seminary, where Eric Zeller, our missionary, is president. And uh, what a what a delightful trip! I just I thank you for the privilege of enabling me to go and um, to unfold the scriptures there. A couple of highlights: uh, one, just being with Eric and Heather, being in their home, and uh, and having lots of interaction with them. Just such a delight, a confirmation that this is a dear brother faithful servant of Christ, and uh, just so thankful that we're able to partner with him in that really strategic ministry there in Dubai. The church out of which the seminary has grown is Redeemer Church. Some of you are familiar with it. I know some of you maybe even listened to the podcast uh, of their weekly services. Um, Dave Furman is the pastor there, and there are 60 languages spoken in that church. And so um, the 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 ups, uh, one of many upsides is everything is in English, so it makes it easy for teaching and for worshiping, and because English is the common language. But the real upside is that there are many who have come to Dubai to work, and they're being trained in that church, trained through the seminary, and then going back to their home home countries. Many of which are very difficult to get into. Uh, countries like Pakistan, for instance, uh, and I believe one of the students was from there. We had students from uh, the Philippines, from India, uh, all over the South, Southeast Asia and uh, the Middle East. And just such a tremendous opportunity um, to be able to minister the gospel there uh, through biblical counseling. And, and the class was such a highlight as well because um, you could just see the light bulbs going on. So the first couple of days, they're kind of a little bit skeptical. And then they just you can just see them engaging and asking questions and recognizing this book really has answers for life. And it was absolutely um, thrilling to watch uh, people go through that transformation process. And I think without exception, at the end of the week, we asked them, uh, how did the course help you? And without exception, everyone that spoke said, um, spoke about some particular lecture that was particularly meaningful to them and said, and I went home and confessed to my spouse. Ways in which I had been sinning against him or her. And and that's just thrilling because um, the process of transformation in the counseling room starts with the counselor. Uh, because counselors are messy people too and need the gospel to change them. And so just being able to see them grab a hold of this book that's so helpful was was such a delight. So thank you for praying. Thank you for enabling me to go. Some of you were praying as well for my transition, and um, thank you. That This was by far the easiest trip uh, from a sleep standpoint for me, both going and coming, and um, I, I, um, I think that is in part due to your prayers and in part due to direct flights, which were long but direct, and, uh, and so that made a huge difference, and so really thankful. It's been a, a relatively simple transition uh, back to uh, central standard, almost daylight savings time, uh, hint for next week. All right, come with me to the throne of God's grace, and then we will come to Hebrews chapter 11. Would you bow with me as we commend our worship in the scriptures to him? Father, we've just sung um, these words about your word. It is an ancient book, but that does not mean it is irrelevant. It is an ancient book that has stood the test of time and eternity. It is indeed the only faithful book 
It is the only inerrant book ever written. It is the only book that is a living word. It is the only book that can change our souls. And we come to this book and we give it so much attention, both in corporate and in private worship, because this is our lifeline. This is where we must live. This is, this is the tool that you will use to transform our minds and change our lives. And so as we open this book to what I trust is a very familiar passage to most of us, that you would be pleased over the next months to give us a rock-solid faith in you, a reliance on you, a dependence in you, and a hope and a confidence in you, and that our lives would be dramatically changed and transformed by these ancient words. Would you begin that? Even this morning, we pray in the name of Christ and for His sake. Amen. We live in an unjust world. This is the hospitality center for the Slavic Gospel Association in Irpin, Ukraine, where I stayed almost exactly two years ago this month. This is now one of the roads that leads to that center. In fact, I had dinner, Regine and I had dinner with Dan Kirk and his wife on Friday, and he said he's been seeing videos that are showing the roads that go to the school being absolutely devastated and flattened. The war against Ukraine has grieved many of you, and it grieves and provokes me to sorrow for many of the same reasons that it does you, and one more. My cultural heritage is Mennonite. My maternal, excuse me, my paternal grandfather was a jeweler. My maternal grandparents and their parents were all farmers. And all of my grandparents, both sides of the family, fled for their lives from the Bolsheviks in the late 19-teens and the early 1920s from the Ukraine. Now, 100 years later, a similar army is invading the same country for a similar purpose. And if my family had not fled 100 years ago, I might be in the midst of that conflict. And that is not lost on me. We live in an unjust world. I've just come back from Dubai teaching on family counseling to people from places like the Philippines and Pakistan and India and other Middle Eastern countries. And I've heard such stories of family injustice and sin in families that it has made me thankful for the civil laws that we have in this country to protect our families. And that sounds weird to my ears, even as I say that. We live in an unjust world. I've been in a counseling room as a pastor or a counselor hearing tragic stories, internally begging the Lord to give me some word of wisdom from the Scriptures, because I certainly had no wisdom for particularly problematic and difficult situations. I've wept with those people, and then I've gone home, and as I've put my head on my pillow, I've wept again for the grief that they've experienced. I've sinned against others, 
And I've seen the, the devastation of my sin against them. I've had people sin against me and I've experienced the grief and the sorrow and the hardship from being sinned against. We see injustice in this world and, and sometimes we're just tempted to say, faith in Jesus just doesn't work. He promised a better life, but it just doesn't seem to be better and it certainly doesn't look like it's going to get any better. Everything is so horribly broken Should I just give up on Jesus? My guess is that most of us are orthodox enough to know that we should should never utter such blasphemous things from our lips. And so most of us have never said that audibly in that way. But my guess is also that most of us have felt that way. Maybe even today. The corruptness of the world system and injustice that is created by personal sin tempts us to hopelessness. And in our despair, we're tempted to give up on Christ, the church, the cross, and Christian relationships and Christian fellowship. And brothers and sisters, we are not the first to feel that way. The book of Hebrews is a a letter that is written to a group of people that were tempted by the injustice of their suffering to give up on Jesus. They were saying something like, we are suffering, so we must have believed in the wrong thing. There has to be an easier way out. Jesus doesn't seem to be easy, so let's give up on Jesus and let's go back to the law, let's go back to Judaism, and let's go back to what we have known in the past when we didn't suffer. And the writer of the Hebrews is writing to warn them about the dangers of rejecting Christ and to encourage them to continue in their faith in Christ. And over the next few months, I want to look with you at one chapter in the book of Hebrews. We're not going to do the whole thing, but I want to look with you at one chapter, likely the most well-known chapter in this book, Hebrews chapter 11. And I want to remind us over these next weeks and months why believing in and following Jesus is worth it even when suffering Even when there is hardship and difficulty and injustice that doesn't seem to be explainable or right. And this morning we're going to look at the writer's introduction to his answer for the question, what does it mean to have faith in Jesus when we are suffering? What does it mean to live by faith when life is harsh and unjust? His thesis this morning will be a repeated theme throughout the chapter. I'm simply saying it this way. Faith is the way to have life and faith is the way to live life. Everything we do flows out of faith and trust in Christ. And in this opening section, the first part of chapter 11 we will find three implications for an ongoing life of faith. Three Three outworkings of what life in faith in Christ looks like, even when we live in an unjust world, especially when we live in an unjust world, unjust world. We want to start in chapter 11, but before we get to chapter 11, I want you to see the context in which the writer is writing. It's It is essential not to see this chapter, chapter 11, 
as simply a hall of godly faith. That is, this is just, this is the place where we recognize the most godly of God's chosen men, that men that walked supremely in faith and faithfulness. But we need to see the connection between what the writer is doing in this chapter and exalting faithfulness to Christ and how it's connected to the reader's temptation to leave Christ and go back to Judaism and how the writer is using this chapter to encourage his readers. So to that end, as we think about the context, we need to understand what is said about the reader's situation before chapter 11. So before we get here, what do we know about the readers and their situation and their suffering? There, there is implication of their suffering throughout this book, but one of the clearest statements is actually given in the reading that we just read in chapter 10, start in verse 32. Remember the former days when after being enlightened, after, after you were exposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ and many of them had responded to it, he says, you endured a great conflict of suffering. You, you, You endured the conflict, the difficulty in this world that comes from having faith in Jesus Christ and you suffered for it. What kind of suffering? Well, verse 33, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations. So there are personal attacks publicly and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. So not all of you were treated that way, but you were identified with those who were. And so you suffered alongside them. You showed sympathy, verse 34, to the prisoners. So some were imprisoned for their faith in Jesus Christ. And among those who weren't imprisoned, he says, you also accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. So you lost property. You were kicked out of your house. You had your animals and your livestock taken away. You had your jobs taken away. You lost your physical means to provide for yourself and and be sustained and comfortable. And you accepted that, he says, joyfully, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. He talks in chapter 12 as well about the kind of suffering. He's, he's unclear about what he's referring to, but he says in 12.4, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding of blood in your striving against sin. So there's a, there's a push against sin and you, you haven't gone to the extreme, though, though you've been battling against sin. 13. Three, he says, remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who are ill-treated since you yourselves are also in the body. So there are people in the body who are imprisoned, who are suffering bodily, and you're connected with them. So there is suffering massively among these readers. We know from chapter 3 as well, verses 12 to 14, that they were being tempted by sin to such a point that they were being tempted to, to apostasy and leaving the faith. We know from chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, that they had stopped growing in their faith. So he, he's pretty clear. We might even say harsh, hard. He says in verse 11 of chapter 5, concerning him, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers... You have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles about the oracles of God and you have come to need milk and not solid food. You just aren't mature. You should be. You've had time. You've had exposure to the scriptures. You ought to be mature and you've stopped growing. We know from chapter 6 that they were tempted to leave their commitment to Jesus Christ to return to Judaism. We know from chapter 10 that they were forsaking the fellowship of other believers. 
That's why he says, verse 24, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some. So some have just said, I'm quitting church. I'm walking away. I give up. And so these are people that are persecuted, suffering. They're in difficulty. They're in trial. They're wrestling with sin. They're giving up. And many of them are leaving the faith. It's just going to be easier if we give up on Jesus. I want you to notice what else is said about this concept of faith before we get to chapter 11. This book provides a series of warnings. We see warnings in chapter 2, chapter 3, and chapter 4, chapter 5, through the end of chapter 6, chapter 10, and chapter 12. A series of warnings about what's going to happen if they leave Christ. And he is provoking them and stimulating them to say, endure, endure, persevere, keep going. Just because you're suffering doesn't mean that something has gone wrong. It might mean that something has gone right, that people are actually seeing Christ in you and they hate Christ and so they hate you. Don't quit. That's why he says what he says, for instance, in chapter 10, verse 22. Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let's draw near to Christ. Don't leave Him. Go close to Him. The thing that's pushing you away or tempting you away from Him should be the thing that is compelling you to go to Him all the more. Draw near. Verse 23, He adds to that. Let us hold fast. The confession of our hope without wavering. Why? Because He who promised is faithful. You be faithful because He is faithful. And the key to understanding chapter 11 is rooted in verses 32 and following. They're suffering. They're struggling with sin. Life is hard on every level. And even then, the writer says, I almost said Paul. And I... That's going to be a temptation just because I've been in Romans so long. The writer says in the midst of the suffering, verse 35, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence. Your confidence is Christ. And when you throw Him away, end of verse 35, you're throwing away that which has a great reward. Don't give up. Keep the faith. Keep enduring. Verse 36, For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. And the key to enduring is living by faith. And there, after verse 36, he quotes from Habakkuk 2, 3 and 4, one of the most quoted Old Testament passages in the New Testament, Notice verse 38, my righteous one will live by faith. If you're going to be righteous, if you're going to be one of God's people, you live by faith in him. And the kind of faith that he's talking about in this particular context 
is the faith that when we are suffering and when the world is unjust and when things appear to go so wrong that we believe the one who has promised what he has promised in verse 37, for yet in a very little while, it's coming quickly, he who is coming will Come. That's our faith. He made a promise. And he's coming. And he will not delay. Oh, brothers. We can trust this. I live in your world. And my life is messy. Like yours is. And we need to remember That he who is coming will come and will not delay. That's the object of our faith. The kind of faith that he's talking about here is not just a faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. That's certainly implied. But he's talking about a kind of faith that is an ongoing lifestyle and pattern. And this is the kind of faith that the Old Testament saints that he's going to unpack in chapter 11 had. And the kind of faith that every believer, even the readers of the Hebrew, of this letter to the Hebrews should have. Verse 39. So his conclusion from Hebrews, or from Habakkuk 2 is this. We are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the gospel. Excuse me, to the preserving of the soul. And then, from that statement, he transitions into chapter 11. And verse verse 1 of chapter 11, he says this, Now, faith is. And it's almost as if he finishes talking about faith in verse 38. And faith in verse 39 is an, and is anticipating the question. So, so what is it that faith is like? What, what does this look like? What, what kind of faith is this? I want you to just think broadly about what you know about chapter 11 already before we jump into it. And I want you to think about all of the examples that are given about faithful living in Hebrews chapter 11. Now, as we think about the book of Hebrews, the only Old Testament saints that have been mentioned up to chapter 10, verse 39, are Abraham, Melchizedek, Moses, Aaron, and Joshua. They're the only ones that have been mentioned in this book so far. And as the writer makes a case for living out the faith in Jesus Christ and being faithful to them, He points in this chapter only to Old Testament saints. And he points to a pile of them. And we shouldn't miss the irony. The readers were tempted to go back to the Old Testament. And the writer is asserting that if you're going to go back to the Old Testament you are not returning to a spiritual heritage that will save you. Because those in the Old Testament 
who had genuine faith were looking forward to the Christ that you are now wanting to leave. And so he, he says to this group of people that are wanting to go back under the law, you've missed the point of the law if that's what you're trying to go back under and that will not save you and it will not keep you. That's, that's really critical that you understand that as we head into this chapter. As you think about the list of people that we're going to see over the next months, there are some remarkable men in this list. Men like Enoch, Noah, Abraham, the patriarchs, Moses. And then there are some, frankly, from our perspective, less than remarkable men. Men like Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah. And despite their amazing accomplishments, sometimes you just wonder, don't you, what, what am I supposed to do with men like David and Samuel? I mean, men after God's own heart, book of Acts says about David, and yet <laughs> there was a disconnect in areas, wasn't there? And what do you do with those people? And why, why is the writer pointing to people like that? Because the emphasis in this list is not on the people, but on the God who preserves people in faithful living. Listen to um, what Richard Koken in his really helpful book, Faith for Life, says. The author is not describing the faith of an elite few. He's selecting some big moments when God enabled faith in the lives of very ordinary believers down through the centuries, not to make heroes of them, but to remind his readers of how God has enabled his people, including mess-ups like most of us, to persevere through all sorts of difficulty by faith. This chapter is not about superhuman faith. It's about the kind of faith that God has always given His people from the very beginning. So as we come to this book, don't, this chapter, don't just see this about, about really great people. See this chapter about a really great God who preserves people in really difficult circumstances. So, that being said, what are we going to say in this chapter? First implication that we're going to find about living by faith is the explanation of faith that he gives in verse 1. And even as we come to that, I think it's helpful for us to understand that there are various kinds of faith in the New Testament. So there's a kind of faith in the New Testament that's simply a mental assent to the truth about Christ, but without saving faith. So, so the person says, well, yeah, I believe in Jesus. I believe that Jesus existed, that he was a real person, and he lived on this earth, and he did some really cool stuff, and he was a really great teacher, and he was a really motivating person, and the, a moral man, and we ought, to, we ought to try and emulate our lives after Jesus Christ. Are you a believer in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? Oh, no! I don't believe in Jesus in that way. After all, I'm a demon, and I'm opposed to him. That's what... James says, James chapter 2, essentially. So even the demons have a kind of faith in Christ that isn't a saving faith. There's also a kind of faith that entrusts one's life to God for salvation and redemption. So that's the kind of faith we saw in 
Romans chapter 3 and Romans chapter 4. I can't save myself. I am absolutely empty and devoid of any ability to save myself. I can't. God must. And so that's the faith that leads us to salvation in Christ. And then there is another kind of faith that is an ongoing life and pattern of faith that flows out of one's trust in God to do what is right in his life circumstances. And that's what this writer is talking about. He's talking about a faith that is ongoing, persistent, that flows out of saving faith in Jesus Christ. That's what he's talked about in verse 36 and verse 39 of chapter 10. It's what he will talk about in again in chapter 13, verse 7. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. So they had a kind of conduct that flowed out of their faith in Christ, and we ought to imitate that kind of faith. That's what this writer is talking about. Says one commentator, faith is a living thing. It's a way of life. So when the father, the author says here in verse 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, it sounds like he's giving us a definition, doesn't it? Faith is, and then fill in the blank. I don't think he's giving us so much a definition as he is giving us a characterization or a description. This is what faith looks like. This is what faith does. And if you're going to live an ongoing life of faith in Christ, a transformed life that is rooted in Christ, walking with Christ, this is what it's going to look like. And the first thing he's going to say is that living faith is confident in God's future provision. Living faith is confident in God's future provision. Now, faith, he says, is the assurance of things hoped for. The word assurance is a word that can mean something like um, the substantial nature of something, the essence of the actual being of something. It's a realization of something, like, like a promise. So it's, I promise to do something for my wife or my kids, and when that comes to fruition, um, then, then it's the promise realized. It's the assurance. So we had a whole bunch of shrubs next to our house that, that were severely damaged by snowmageddon last year. And so we were just kind of waiting to see, you know, what's the fallout going to be? Is there going to be any new growth or should we take them all the way to the ground? And so yesterday I've been promising Regine, I'm going to help you. I'm going to help you. I'm going to help you. And I helped her. And so several of you have asked, did Regine beat up on you? No, the shrubs did. So that's the reason for the mark on my cheek and uh, my arms being torn up as well. So what Regine realized yesterday was the assurance of that promise that I made months ago. I will help you with those shrubs. We will get them pulled out, trimmed back to the point where perhaps they may grow again. What the believer needs confidence in, the writer of the Hebrews says, is the assurance of things that are hoped for. The things that have been promised that relate to God's provision for the end of time. It, it really goes back to verse 37 of chapter 10. He who's coming will come. And he won't delay. He's promised. 
That's our hope. That's our settled confidence. That's where we live. So living faith is confident that nothing happening on earth has usurped or overthrown God's plan. Christ will return. Christ will reign on David's throne. Satan will be bound. Sinners will be judged. Sin and death gloriously will cease. Every tear will be removed from our eyes. We will enjoy peace and rest eternally and never be bothered by the flesh or sin again. That's our confidence. That's our hope. Now, I have an eschatological view about how these things will happen, but that's not the writer's emphasis here. He's trying to simply get us to look past today and look at tomorrow. To see God's eternity and God's faithfulness. He's getting us to see things like 1 Thess 5.24. Faithful is he who calls you and he will bring it to pass. His calling is not shortchanged by the difficulty of the world we live in. A living faith does not deny the hardships and injustice of this world. But a living faith does not get overwhelmed by despair because of this world, because it looks past this world. Injustice is short. And justice is eternal and infinite. Pain is short. Pleasure is evermore in heaven. And brothers and sisters, this is what we need to be rehearsing. Every time we look at the news, every time we hear a report of suffering, every time we experience hardship, we need to look past today and at tomorrow when Christ is coming. That was, that was the practice of the faithful people in this chapter. That's going to be his emphasis in Hebrews 11. Look just down the page, verse 13. All these died in faith. He's speaking there about Enoch. Well, Enoch didn't die, but Enoch's life ended. Noah, Abraham, Sarah, all these, he said, died in faith without receiving the promises. But having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on this earth. I'm a stranger here, but I'm no stranger in heaven. And that's where I'm looking. I get no confidence here, but I have every confidence in what God's doing for me in heaven. Verse 25, speaking about Moses, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with, God, with the people of God than to enjoy the past passing pleasures of sin. I'm going to be faithful to God because this enticement to sin is going away and it's passing and it will not satisfy. Keep me clinging to God. Verses 35 and following, I won't read the whole thing, but... Maybe just read this chapter this week. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. Not looking at the suffering today, but looking at the freedom from it tomorrow. When we suffer, 
and the world goes wrong, that does not mean our future has changed. We keep looking forward to Christ, established and certain of God who will fulfill his promise. There's a second characteristic of faith that he gives in this verse. It is that living faith is confident when the future is unseen. This phrase is essentially parallel to the first, but it expands it just a little bit more. The word conviction refers to evidence or proof. So when he says faith is a conviction, he says it's a proof, it's evidence. It's not rash, it's not subjective, it's not a feeble childlike wish, it's not a pie in the sky when you die kind of mentality. It's conviction, it's confidence, it's reality. And what is the reality that the one who is living by faith experiences and sees? He is looking, watch this, he is looking at something substantive though he does not see it. It's assurance, it's confidence, it's reality of things that I don't yet see. We don't have to physically see what we believe in order to experience the reality of it. So says one commentator, faith extends beyond what we learn from our senses. We know the reality, even though we can't see it or touch it. What is the thing that that the writer is inferring that we don't see. Well, we don't see the future, right? So we don't know what's going to happen in 10 years, and we don't know what's going to happen in 10 10 minutes. We don't know what's going to happen with certainty in 10 seconds. We can take good guesses, but that's all they are. It's good guesses. So we don't see the future, but I don't think that's what he means here. There is a conviction about something that sustains these people in their faith despite not seeing that? What is the conviction about the reality that they have that they don't yet see? The conviction and the reality is that God is working behind the scenes though they cannot see everything that He is doing. I don't need to see behind the curtain of my physical reality to understand God's at work and he is not overthrown. Satan has not ventured into the fortress of heaven and said, I win. He is defeated and God is working. Keith and I were talking this week about his dissertation project on Jonathan Newton, John Newton and we talked about William Cooper problematic person. Um, But Cooper wrote a number of hymns with John Newton, one of which is his hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. Listen to what he writes. God moves in a mysterious way, His wonders to perform. He plants His footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. I think there's a double-edged meaning there, right? So he plants his footsteps in the sea when it's raging and he's not overthrown, but it also has the inference we don't necessarily see him in the sea because the footsteps are washed away. Deep 
in unsearchable minds of never failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. And ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, eyesight, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Life's hard here. It will never be hard in eternity. Oh, friend, just because you can't see the working hand of God, don't despair. He is sure. You know what's interesting about these two clauses is the first clause is forward-looking, right? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. I'm looking past today, and I'm looking into the future. The second clause is not future-looking, it's today-looking. It is the conviction of things not seen. Today, though I don't see it, I know God's working. I know it's safe. This clause is looking squarely at the present situation and saying, I see something you don't see. I understand what God is doing. And I understand that God is in the midst of the circumstances. This is exactly what Moses did. Verse 27, by faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. Couldn't see him, but he acted as if he could see him. Brothers and sisters, we do not live with observed certainties But we do live with certainties. We can't see it. But it's certain. It's sure. And a life of faith acts accordingly. If you're looking at the clock like I just did and you're getting worried, that's the bulk of the message. Let me just flesh out a couple more things. And I came back. This happens to me. Every time I travel, I come back and I am fired up. And uh, I've got to tell you, I've been so looking forward to this chapter. And this, this week has been sweet to my soul. Just seeing the riches of the confidence that we have in such a great God. And um, I was weeping yesterday as I was studying. And I'm misty-eyed again. Uh, because God is so good. I picked the background on these slides. I don't know how well you can see it Intentional, with intentionality. We live in a world that's surrounded by mountains and there are difficulties and trials in mountains. And those mountains are often shrouded in mist and we can't see where we're going. But God is in the midst of those clouds, guiding us and leading us and keeping us where we need to be. I want you to see... Not only the explanation of faith, but I want you to see verse 2, the grace of faith. 
We like to do cost-benefit analysis, don't we? And we're just kind of surrounded by that, you know. <clears throat> Go to the grocery store, cost-benefit analysis on Hellman's mayonnaise. I tried to buy something that was non-Hellman's one time. The benefit to buying Hellman's mayonnaise in my house is it stimulates fellowship between me and Ray Jean because there's only one kind of mayo. So if it's four bucks, that's okay. Might be six now. I don't care. Ray Jean says there's only one kind of mayo that's coming in the house. It's costing me six bucks, but it's coming in the house. There's a lot of benefit. So we do cost-benefit analysis, right? What's the cost to living this way? There is a cost to living by faith, isn't there? The, writer, the, re, the readers of, of this letter looked at the cost and said, it's too high. I'm not going to pay it. What's interesting is the writer of this letter doesn't hide the cost. Read verses 35 to 40 this afternoon. The cost is clear. It's massive in this world. But he also wants us to see the benefit of living by faith. What happens when people live by faith? Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, conviction of things not seen. Verse 2, 4, by it, by, by living by faith, by it, the men of old gained approval. To gain approval from God means something like God has testified about their faith. In fact, my marginal reading in my Bible says they obtained a good testimony. And that, that really captures the sense of it. Because the word approval is actually a testimony. So God testifies about them. And what's he testifying? He's making an evaluation about their lives. They're faithful. I think this is akin to something like we find in Matthew chapter 25. It's it's akin to a, a well done, good and faithful servant that we hear from the throne of God. If we've been faithful. And what I want you to notice when he says, for by it the men of old gained approval, it's possible to gain approval from God, for God to say, well done. You've lived faithfully. It has been noted that pleasing God is of the greatest possible importance. He does not set his heart, the writer does not set his heart on gaining human approval. That can be dangerous. He longs that at this present moment he is earning God's approval and that in the end God will express it. And the way to gain approval from God is living by faith. Says one writer, faith is the key that unlocks everything in the Christian life. So, one result of living by dependent faith on God the I don't see but I believe kind of confidence that we have day by day is that we receive the grace of God's approval at the end when we see Him face to face. We get grace. We get God's delight in us. Weak, fleshly, clay pots that are messy and he approves and delights 
Isn't that grace? There's grace that comes from living by faith. I think when the writer writes this, he's thinking back to verse 38 of chapter 10. My righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, here's a warning. If you shrink back, if you pull back, if you choose not to live by faith, not to continue on as if God is God, my soul has no pleasure in him. So really, you've got two categories of people, those that God finds pleasure in and God, those that God does not find pleasure in. And the difference is living by faith, not living by faith. Those that gain approval by God have always lived by faith. And he's about to give us a lot of examples of those who have lived by faith. But before he does that, he gives us a different kind of example of living by faith. It's it's the kind of faith that the readers are already exhibiting. It's the kind of faith that even... The oldest of saints in the Old Testament believed. In fact, it's the very oldest kind of faith because it began when time began. Notice verse 3. By faith, we understand, we know that the worlds, the ages literally, so not just the created world, but everything in the world, time, space, history, everything that is in the world The worlds were prepared by the word of God. There the word is not logos like is used in John chapter 1 of Jesus. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's it's a different word for word and it means something like utterance, declaration, speech. So he's simply saying the worlds were prepared by the speech of God, the utterance of God, the declaration of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. The word here means that God has created everything by His simple declaration. That's why we read Psalm 33 this morning. By the word of the Lord The heavens were made. We look at the complexity of the universe and the galaxies and all of space and everything that is out there. And you go, there's such massive complexity. How did it come about? God said, universe appear. And it's there. Everything working in magnificent harmony with a simple word. And by his breath, by, excuse me, by the breath of his mouth, all their host, just one utterance, and it's all there instantaneously. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays the deeps in the storehouses. Consequence, implication. Verse 8, let all the earth fear the Lord and all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him because he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. And so that verse means not just he brought it into being, but he holds it in being. And don't think that he's straining. Well, it took him six days. He must have just been flat out exhausted. No. He said, worlds appear and they appeared. 
And it was no more strain for him to create the vastness of the universe and the complexity of every microorganism than for us to, order, to utter those words. Oh, he is a great and magnificent God and everything is under his hand. And the point of the writer of the Hebrews is that we are living the readers then and we today are living dependent on that act of creation and we are living dependent on the fact that He will continue to sustain the world. And if we can trust Him to keep the worlds in orbit and to keep the sun shining and the rain raining, we can trust Him for everything else. This is what it means to live by faith. We don't have to see it. In order to believe it. That's what he points at the end of this verse, right? So that what is seen is not made out of things which are visible. God's doing things that we can't see. But they are real nonetheless. What are some of the things that we don't see in this world? Well, he identifies a number of things in this chapter and throughout this letter. We do not see the exalted Christ. We don't see Christ on his throne in heaven today. We do not physically see God. That's verse 27. We don't see the past creation. That's verse 3. Nobody was there to see what God was making except the angels. But no human was present when the worlds were created. We don't see yet the fulfillment of future promises. We don't see yet the fulfillment of future judgments. And all those things are far more valuable and far more significant than what we see in this world. And brothers and sisters, what I want you to see with this is this, that what is unseen is of far more value and far more importance than what is seen today. And when we give attention to the valuable realities of what is unseen it will absolutely transform the way you live today. What is most important today is not what Fox News says about Ukraine and the war there or what your favorite blogger is writing about or tweeting about on social media. Those things are all short-lived. What is most important is the supremacy of God and the faithfulness of God to His people. We don't see it. But it's true, brothers and sisters. And we've got to live there. He has sustained all of His people in all of their trials. And He will sustain us. And He is calling us to live, verse 3, by faith. Believe Him. He really is faithful to keep you. I've been so encouraged this week by reading a book that I just honestly just stumbled on accidentally. Uh, Richard Koken has written a book on Hebrews 11 called Life for Faith. He writes this. Christians are tempted to shrink back from public loyalty to Christ when we forget where we belong. We don't belong to this godless world that we so foolishly try to impress. And we don't belong with fair-weather church people who drift away when they feel the scorching heat of criticism. We belong with the great crowd of witnesses in chapter 11 who didn't shrink back. How can we shrink back from loyalty to Christ when every 
night sky and every rumble of thunder reminds us of His power to keep His promises. We can trust His promise even if everyone in the office tells us it's nonsense because by faith in His Word, we know what God can do. You too can be confident and sure of what you hope for, confident in God's power to keep His promise of a new creation and certain of what you do not see, confident in God's loving provision even though you can't see Him because you live in an amazing universe that proves the power of God's Word. This is life by faith. Father, thank You for this Word. Oh, even this morning, we've just gotten a taste of what's coming and our hearts are thrilled at being reminded of Your goodness, Your grace, Your power, and You will make all things right. Oh, Father, would you help us to live in that this week, this month, in whatever remaining time you give us here on earth, that we might be faithful to you here and be approved by you there in your presence. Would you be pleased to work that? We pray in the name of Christ and for his glory. Amen.